Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. Today, we're going to be talking about a hot topic, sex. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to be talking about sex frankly, directly, and honestly. It's going to be an adult conversation with no softening that simply addresses realities head on. But because of this, you might not want to listen to it with the kids in the room. You know, go get your earbuds or something. Go sit out in the car. This isn't going to be a moral discussion of good and bad, right or wrong. That's up to each of you individually to worry about or to not worry about. And frankly, it's utterly irrelevant for matters of emotional health and emotional unhealth. A discussion focusing on emotional health and emotional unhealth is an entirely distinct and separate conversation from a discussion about notions of good and bad, right and wrong. So to set the stage, it's important for me to make a distinction right up front that my primary focus with the last symptom is to talk about matters of emotional health with you, not issues of morality or issues of right and wrong. Two entirely separate, distinct conversations. Let's talk about why this is for just a minute or two. Notice this statement here. Unhealthy does not equal bad and wrong. And healthy does not equal good and moral. Why not? Because emotional health and good or bad are two entirely separate things. They're two entirely separate, distinct topics. The two topics are not in any way inherently related. Now, some people will say, well, if you're living an ungodly life, this ruins your relationship with God and you'll lose out on the possibility of an eternal future. And My response to that is, okay, <laughs> Does that not apply equally to emotionally healthy people and emotionally unhealthy people alike? Have you not met anybody religious who is emotionally unhealthy? I sure have. In fact, I don't think it's an exaggeration if I say that about half of them are emotionally unhealthy, which is about the same percentage as the general population of people who aren't religious at all. 
emotionally healthy does not equal godly. Just because you're emotionally healthy does not mean you're godly. And emotionally unhealthy does not equal ungodly. Are you starting to get the picture? Bringing in matters of morality to a discussion about emotional health and emotional unhealth makes about as much sense as bringing in matters of finance to a discussion about music theory. To try to illuminate this distinction more, let's briefly review what separates a person who's emotionally healthy from those who are emotionally unhealthy. What is the difference? What is the distinction? The emotionally healthy person has an accurate underlying perspective about the nature of feelings, self, and life. Because of this, their approach to life is harmonious and mostly free of disharmonious clashes within life. So what's emotional unhealth? Anytime somebody is living with inaccurate perspectives about the nature of feelings, self, and life. As a natural result, the way they approach life is inherently disharmonious. It's like me driving around town, believing that for all traffic signals, red means go and green means stop. Now, just imagine that I believe this because this is just the way I was taught. And now imagine me driving around town and just imagine the natural chaos and disorder that is unavoidable from me driving around with this misunderstanding that I'm living with. So many unnecessary traffic tickets and near accidents. And do you know what the real irony of this situation is? Imagine what I must think of, of all the other drivers. Do you see it? I'm driving around thinking, Bunch of nincompoops out here who have no business on the road. They're going to get somebody killed, by golly. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because of my misunderstanding, to me, everybody else seems like the wild, dangerous idiots. So many parallels from this illustration with how the inaccurate foundation perceptions at the root of emotional disorders truly affect our ability to interpret everything we're experiencing and viewing and the natural frustrations that result. We can't approach anything harmoniously that we have an inaccurate perception about the true nature of. This is exactly what I'm explaining to you when I say that emotionally unhealthy people live with fundamental misperceptions and misconceptions about the nature of feeling self and life and why exactly this creates the natural, unintended, and confusing conditions that they experience every day. Now, if some smart person observes them for a while and realizes what exactly is causing them so much headache, he could pull them aside and try to help straighten them out. Hey, listen here, buddy. 
seems to me that you 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 seem to think red means go, but it don't. Uh, it means stop. Green means go. Oh, okay. Well, that explains everything. The underlying misperceptions and misconceptions at the root of emotional unhealth are much, much more subtle than the illustration I just gave you here. But it does give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So now do you see why morality has nothing whatsoever to do with emotional health? It's because there are people who live extremely moral lives who also live with inaccurate underlying perspectives about the nature of feeling self and life. Likewise, there are people who do not subscribe to standard ideas of morality or God in the least bit, but who also have accurate underlying perspectives about the nature of feeling self and life. All right, now that we've discussed what distinguishes healthy people from unhealthy people, let's quickly review what distinguishes healthy things from unhealthy things. Do you, do you remember what determines this? It's almost never the thing itself. If it's not the thing itself, what is it? It's the underlying motivating force causing a person to choose to do that thing or to not do that thing. Now, what I'm going to do is use three examples revolving around religion to illustrate that it is motivating force which determines if things, such as activities or decisions, are healthy or not. Why am I going to use religion for my illustrations? Well, for a couple reasons. First of all, I think my atheist listeners or those who are disgusted with the hypocrisy of religious institutions in general will get a kick out of it. And anytime I can find common ground with you guys, I enjoy doing so. But also, I think it's fun to use religion in my illustration because today's topic is sex. And I like to shock people with stark contrasts or by combining two things that seem sort of uncomfortably contrary to each other. Furthermore, using religion helps to illustrate just how true it is that godly does not inherently equal healthy, and ungodly does not inherently equal unhealthy. The two topics truly are in no way related. So here we go. Number one, I'd like you to imagine a person who becomes a religious fanatic because they're trying to compensate for their sense of inherent worthlessness. Their religious fanaticism is unhealthy. Why? Because it's being motivated by an inaccurate, emotionally unhealthy lie or misconception. The idea that they're inherently worthless. By the way, the reality that we all have inherent worth as people is not the same as suggesting that we were not born imperfect, okay? So if you've wondered about this, maybe it's something we could discuss further in the future. Yes, we all are born imperfect and sinful. No, this does not mean 
that you do not have inherent worth. Imperfection and worth, again, are two entirely different topics. Example number two. How about if a person's religious fervor is being born out of the need for external validation? In other words, they're unable to generate their own sense of validation from within based on the foundation certainty that they matter and have inherent worth. So because they don't live with this foundation certainty, they can't generate their own sense of validation from within. So they join a religion to try to make up for this and are constantly taking pleasure in comparing themselves as more righteous than others. They get their sense of self-righteous value and thrive on the external validation of feeling more righteous than other people. Healthy or unhealthy? You probably guessed it. It's unhealthy. And why? Because of the unhealthy forces motivating them. Do you see? They are unquestionably religious, but they're still unhealthy. And this unhealthy foundation they live with is a barrier in fact, to any real healthy relationship that they might be able to have with God anyway. Now, finally, third example, we have a person who's godly because he looks around at life and he deeply appreciates what God has already done for him. The miracle of being alive as just one example. He understands that although he's imperfect, being a person means he has inherent worth regardless. So he's not trying to compensate for a lack of worth. We're trying to compensate by searching for sources of external worth. Also, he's able to generate his own sense of validation from within, so he doesn't need to compare himself to other people and feel more righteous than they are. Because he lives in harmony with the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority, he has no interest in sitting around judging other people's life choices. You see, he recognizes, first of all, that they have the same full inherent authority and rights over their own lives and decisions as he himself does, and that no other person alive has any business whatsoever concerning themselves or getting involved with what only belongs to that other person. Also, it's pretty clear to this person that only God has any authority to judge people for their choices. Probably, even more importantly, this person recognizes that there are plenty of things about himself or herself that could be improved upon, and that this is the only place that his or her attention can healthfully be. What would you say? Healthy or unhealthy? Clearly healthy. Everything we just described reflects accurate foundation perceptions and therefore healthy motivations being born from healthy origins. After this episode, I don't want to be getting a ton of emails about how cheating on partners is bad or about how God disapproves of this or that or any such stuff. It doesn't matter if I agree with you or disagree with you on any of those issues. 
for this conversation, moral issues are totally irrelevant. Let's get real for a second. Do people have affairs? Yes. Both emotionally healthy and emotionally unhealthy people do this. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. This does happen. Do people have sex outside of marriage? Yes. Both emotionally healthy and emotionally unhealthy people do this. This is the reality we all live in, no matter how we feel about it, and no matter if we personally agree with it or not. It doesn't matter for this discussion. What's more, just because people have made certain decisions that we might disagree with at some point in their life, this doesn't mean that they're forever defined by that decision or that action for forever. Regardless, regardless, there were most certainly more factors involved in those decisions than you and I have any right to believe we have a full enough picture of to pass some sort of self-righteous judgment or to self-righteously declare that you or I would have done any differently if we were experiencing exactly those same circumstances at exactly that same time in our life. It astonishes me how black and white much of the world seems to operate on these days. But it shouldn't astonish me, because I used to be that guy who summed everything up into an oversimplified black and white understanding of things. A tweet I saw recently by a guy named Ed Lattimore said this, Subtlety and nuance require strength. Those who think in absolutes are weak. In this one tweet, Ed Lattimore nails the fundamental shift that happens when you go from emotional unhealth to emotional health. Only emotionally unhealthy people walk around viewing the world in absolutes. When you escape that, during the process of escaping it, you begin to see more and more how absolutes is not a realistic view of anything. The more you begin to see this and appreciate it, the more you begin to relax and approach the world much softer and with greater patience and forgiveness. You begin to incorporate this new, more accurate understanding in your approach to everything, including how critical you are of yourself and of others. Killing people is wrong, ain't it? Until somebody's coming in through your child's bedroom window in the middle of the night with a chainsaw and you shoot them. Animal cruelty is bad, ain't it? Until you're trying to free yourself from the jaws of a crocodile. King David of the Bible, who was a friend of God, had an affair with another man's wife. But if you think that's the end of the story, it ain't. The woman got pregnant. So what did this friend of God do? Well, he effectively had this woman's husband murdered in order to hide the fact that it was David who had gotten her pregnant. Let me ask you something. Have you had any of your lover's wives or husbands murdered lately? 
As many bad things as I've done in my life, I can honestly say nothing I've done comes anywhere within the vicinity to that. And yet, God forgave David. And why? Because of his attitude. David had a good attitude. Overall, he was a very good man with a great attitude who did a stupid, astonishingly bad thing. So, hopefully during today's discussion, no matter what your personal beliefs are, you'll be able to accept the fact that, one, you only have to worry about yourself and your own choices. Don't you see how liberating that is? Number two, you don't know the subtleties and nuances of other people's lives and circumstances. And number three, very, very few things in life are black and white. Remember, there are two distinct realities in play for every single person who is living with an emotional disorder. The first is the human condition, and the second is the disorder. The human condition is not fixable, therefore it's not a problem. So when you hear about a woman who's cheated on her husband, it's very easy to condemn her, ain't it? But you don't know the nuances of that relationship. You don't know if she married when she was 19 and later matured into a different person entirely and realized that she was intimacy-deprived at no fault of her own. Or if she woke up to the fact that her husband uses her like an inanimate possession. Maybe she's been blind to this the whole time because she was just ignorant. We don't know if she tried to work with her husband and he's just not not doing his part. We don't know if he's living up to his responsibilities in the relationship. Or maybe the woman had two small children, feared being cut off from them or feared being able to support them on her own. Or if she married into a situation where she assumed she would always be materially provided for, so she never gained any skills or job experience. Or if the affair she ended up in was indirectly a pathway that would eventually lead her to understanding some underlying emotional health issues that she's always been ignorant to and is only now beginning to understand. You see, this is the human condition. As individuals, we have no right to assume the role of judges in our minds and how dare us for having that tendency. Do you know what each of us can do if we personally don't agree with a thing or if we don't personally agree with some other person's choices? Well, we can make different choices for our own lives. Yeah, we can choose for our own personal, individual lives to not do that thing. But that's it. That's all you got. You can still only choose for your personal, individual life to not do that thing you disapprove of so much while acknowledging the reality that you can't possibly understand all the nuances and subtleties that other people were trying to navigate in those moments of their life while trying to do their best. So, as I already mentioned, today's topic is sex, and I'm going to talk to you about it, just as if you were my best buddy sitting with me around a campfire, and we were coming clean about all of our dirty thoughts and nasty escapades. In the interest, of course, of gaining some insights related to emotional health, and emotional unhealth. Bear in mind that nothing I talk about today 
is me expressing approval or disapproval, nor is it any type of endorsement or encouragement for anything sex-related. Why? Oh boy, here we go again. Because this is not a discussion about morality. It's a discussion about sex, emotional health, and emotional unhealth. All right? Hopefully, we're all clear on this now. Before we get started, let me remind you about my official website, thelastsymptom.com. There, you will have access to all the free resources that I offer, this weekly podcast being one of those. If you'd like to support my overall body of work with a donation, you can do that at thelastsymptom.com, and I thank you very deeply for your support. It really is the thing that keeps my work going. Now, back to today's topic, sex. First of all, when it comes to sexual attraction, I love women in general. I especially love African women, Latin women, Russian women, Indian women, American Indian women, Asian women, white women. I love younger women. I love older women. I love blondes. I love brunettes. I love redheads. I love bald women, short-haired women, long-haired women, curly, kinky, frizzy, straight, mussy. I love the things women do with their hair, scrunching it up, balling it, holding it up with pencils, tucking it behind ears. I love the way women stand, the way their voices sound, the way they walk, their insecurities, their strengths, their mood swings, the effeminate ways they hold their bodies or their arms or sit in a chair. All of this is euphoria to me, one of life's greatest and most exquisite pleasures. I love porcelain skin women. I love tan women. And I love dark women. I love women who are bold and nasty. I love women who are shy and hesitant. I love tiny, petite women. I love tall women. I love athletic women and not-so-athletic women. I love women of all shapes. I love large breasts. I love small breasts. I love a fine, tight ass in tight jeans. My favorite parts of women to enjoy, and when I say enjoy, what I really mean is consume because my senses open wide up and allow the whole experience to bathe me. The soft flesh on the under part of her wrist. The soft flesh of her inner thighs. The small of her back right above her ass where the curve of her back begins. God, I love that. I like to ride that whole curve up until I'm kissing the sensitive skin right at the nape of her neck. Even pushing her hair aside to get there is thrilling. 
I love, slowly and deliberately, pulling a shirt down off a shoulder, threatening to reveal her breasts, but stopping short, then covering that bare shoulder in a series of patient, hot kisses on my way to her collarbone and then her throat and her chin, her jawline, and her ear while my fingers creep down and fiddle with the button on her pants or tease along the inside of her panty waistline. I love to go down on her but take the long way getting there with my fingers sliding casually and light over her legs, my lips riding up her inner thighs. God, I love that. Until I get to the unbelievably soft, warm lips between her legs. There I tease, and I kiss slowly near her, but I wait to take her in my mouth until she's almost trembling or ready to clobber me with a pillow. <laughs> I let her feel the heat of my breath. I brush my lips lightly across her as if I'm indecisive, and then finally I take her fully into my mouth and move my tongue inside of her. When I do, there's the hips, that involuntary push forward to meet me while her hands involuntarily snatch at my arms that are cupping her hips or exploring her breasts. God, I love that. I love taking my time and relishing the experience. I especially revel in the sounds that unintentionally escape from her. The way she tastes as she's approaching climax and finally the gush of saltiness. The feminine smell of her body, her sweat, the candle in the room. The sensations of how she feels under my fingers, against my lips, the curves of her, her body under mine, or the weight of her on top of me. In fact, one of my favorites is to take her the way I want her. If I'm on top and I want her on top of me, I, I pull her on top of me. If I want her against a wall, I take her against a wall. I love to have sex against walls, falling off the sides of beds, on the hoods of cars, in the bathroom of a restaurant, under the stars next to a crackling fire with nobody around for miles, digging bits of bark and twigs out of my ass crack for 20 minutes afterwards. Who cares? Worth the, worth the cost. I love to be on top. I love to be ridden like a horse in a chair, on a bed, on a park bench in the middle of the night. I love women who squirt, and I love women who do not squirt. I like to go slow and deliberate and work up to sex with hours of foreplay. And I also like to just rip off clothes and skip the pregame. And I enjoy myself so much and lose such track of time that the sun coming up is often my only signal for how long I've been at it. Oh, I love, love 
sex. My first wife was black. Not brown, black. She was very dark. My primary attraction to her was the contrast. Here she was, very petite and perky and very dark. And here I was, just crawling out from under my rock in Appalachia and getting out into the world for really the first time on my own. I met her, and I wanted her very, very much. I loved the way her dark skin contrasted with the lighter shade of her lips and the palms of her hands. She had these delicate, long fingers, dark, dark skin on the back side of her hand, and light skin on the palm of her hand, and I found that contrast just irresistible. So beautiful. I loved how we had few things in common. You know, it seemed like there'd be a lifetime of things to discover there. And I still believe contrasts are beautiful and can be beautiful, but not if you're completely ignorant about all the realities those differences are going to manifest into and how to deal with those realities or respect them or consider them in context. And, you know, I was only 23, so I wasn't very mature or experienced, and I also had borderline personality disorder, unaware at that time in my life. So after the honeymoon phase, things got difficult quick. But her name was Katrina, and she was born and raised in a predominantly black area of a city, a major city. And I was raised in the woods, way south of her in Appalachia. So talk about contrast. There were a lot of contrasts there. Uh, I lost my virginity at either the age of 17 or 19. I honestly can't remember which. But I do remember who I lost it to. And I remember that she was 35 years old. So I lost my virginity when I was a teenager to a 35-year-old woman. I met her one day, and I had sex with her that day. Then, I never saw or heard of her again after that. She was helping my grandpa that day, sort of as an assistant. He had cancer and was starting to slow down. And so she was going around with him that day, helping him get around and that sort of thing. And on this particular day, my grandpa came out to the farm, which is what we called the woods where I grew up. It wasn't a farm. We just called it that. But my grandpa came out to the farm that afternoon, and he had this woman with him. And as naive and ignorant about life as I was, I got the strong sensation in that brief meeting with this woman that she wanted me. So after they left, I jumped in my car, and I headed into town to my grandpa's house. <laughs> And sure enough, she was still there with my grandpa at his house. At some point, she asked me to come back into the back room and help her hold up some ceiling tile. She was trying to make a few small repairs around my grandpa's house. And uh, I'm telling you, it was hotter than Satan's nutsack that day. So she was wearing this light, loose-fitting t-shirt, which she had sweated through and her nipples were pushing against the fabric. 
which just sent my entire being into a euphoric fever. At one point, I went back and held up some sealant tile for her. And as I did, she was trying to nail it into place. And in doing so, she pressed her sweaty, curvy body right up against me. Well, it goes without saying that I had the greatest erection of all time. I'm sure it could have made it into Guinness Book World Records for stiffness alone. And while pretending to be primarily concerned about nailing this one piece of ceiling tile that I was holding up over our heads, she moved close to me and pressed herself into my erection. Oh my God, that was it. I would have wrestled a lion with bare hands to get her after that. Well, an hour later, I announced that I was leaving, and she asked me to give her a ride to her apartment, which I did. And when we got there, she asked if I wanted to come in, and I did. And then, once inside, as I was looking around the place, she disappeared for a moment or two into another room, and when she reappeared, she had nothing but a robe on that was completely open in the front. I can still see her standing there today, just like it were yesterday. I could have died right there. She took me by the hand and led me into her bedroom, and I kid you not, I lasted a total of about six seconds. So embarrassing. I lasted so little (laughs) that I just kept pumping away anyway, hoping that she wouldn't notice. But she was very nice and understanding. I just pulled my pants up. I didn't know what to say, what to do. A million things were going through my head. And she went into the bathroom and came back out with a wash rag and said very kindly, a wet wash rag. And she said, with this kind, wry smile on her face, Here, you might want to use this. So I washed my face. I mean, how was I supposed to know what she meant? Well, I've come a long way since then. And yes, I have often thought about that woman and thought, gosh dang it, I would sure like an opportunity to redeem myself with her and knock her socks off with how much better I am at sex today than when she experienced it with me. I I hate the idea of her living her whole life with only that one experience with me as her evaluation of my skills. In fact, there are few skills that I feel comfortable declaring publicly that I've mastered in life, but sex is one of them. And this makes a lot of sense once you realize that good sex is only so minutely a physical thing. More than anything else, it is a psychological thing. Literally anybody in the world can stroke a clitoris or suck on a nipple. Heck, robots can do that. But only people who understand the psychological factors in play can take it really to really great heights of ecstasy and satisfaction. I'm still suffering from some negative consequences of flirting from early on when I started my last symptom work, but long before it was called the last symptom. It didn't have a name. This was long before I had any structure to what I was doing. I was just a guy contributing articles to an online question and answer site. And based on responses to that, 
I had started what at at the time I was calling a Facebook support group. I only called it a support group for maybe a total of six months. Then I reclassified it as an education group. But this just highlights that I, I was nobody. I had no intentions or thoughts of this ever growing into anything. I was just a guy sharing the insights I'd gained while suffering from and then recovering from borderline personality disorder. I know that lots of folks seem to think, you know, I'm not a mind reader, but lots of folks seem to think that I started out with this great vision and strategy for creating the last symptom brand and all that as if I were sitting around in my studio late at night mapping it all out. And, you know, in fact, I get correspondence all the time from other people who are doing similar things to me, and it's clear that that's what they did. You know, they they were in a day job they didn't like, and um, they wanted to work for themselves, so they come up with this idea that, well, I'm going to be a coach or something. And so they tried to create a brand. You know, they work it real hard. I always get correspondence from people wanting to be on this program. And I know what they're up to. <laughs> they're just trying to promote themselves. That is their intention, to promote themselves. And I don't, as you've noticed, I don't have people like that on here because as soon as I see through that, uh, they're worthless to me. But that was not me. I was not in a job I hated. I, I loved working as an interpreter. I had no intentions of being an Internet guy. And what's this term that everybody uses, uh, influencer? I reject that term. It, that Technically, uh, that may be what I am, according to some people, but I reject that term. I'm just a guy <laughs> sharing what he learned from an experience. And uh, I was perfectly happy working as an interpreter, as a medical interpreter in the hospitals, in the medical field. I quit that because of the demand of people who begin to follow my work here. And I realized that this was actually a more important work than the work I was doing as an interpreter. But back at the beginning, you know, I had no structure to what I was doing. I did not. I was not sitting around mapping out how to grow this thing or, or anything like that. Everything related to the last symptom has simply been me reacting to or answering demand that was originally born from me simply being a regular old guy writing some articles that I wasn't even sure anybody would would ever read. Well, I suddenly had all this attention thrust upon me, and it happened pretty quick. Um, I'll have to do a show about that someday. It, it really kind of happened overnight. And I found myself in a situation where I, I had to very quickly create structure for it all moving forward. I had never done anything like this before, and I certainly did not view myself as any sort of public figure. And uh, much of this new attention when I first started this work was from women. In fact, if I'm remembering correctly, in the first year of The Last Symptom, I could have counted on two hands the number of males. Almost the entirety of my audience was women. I heard an author one time explaining that early on in his career, the appreciation he would get from women just for being an author felt the exact same as sexual come-ons from women. In other words, because he had never been a 
quote-unquote celebrity before, and this type of attention was completely new to him. He couldn't distinguish from when a woman was merely an admirer of him as an author or when she desired to have sex with him. Both behaviors appeared exactly the same. So even women who did not want him in a sexual way at all still appeared as if they did because they were given off the same behaviors and signs just as a natural result of their feelings upon meeting an author that they admired for entirely other reasons. Well, I can confirm that this is true. When a woman comes on to me, the signs are both extremely subtle and attractive, by the way. I really love being when a woman comes on to me. But they're extremely subtle, these signs. At the same time, they're extremely recognizable, especially the more experience you, with women that you have. It, it happens in the energy behind the eyes, the energy in the body, the tone of voice, the body language, the way she chooses to word certain things, the trouble she goes to to communicate with me. It's all energy, right? And I'm receiving that energy. And even if the woman does not think of me in a sexual way whatsoever, it still feels the same to me as when a woman is sexually coming on to me. So, very early on in my work here, I regularly initiated flirting openly with women that I had a sexual attraction to who were in my quote-unquote support group because, A, I'm just a regular guy. It's not like I'm your boss. B, much of the energy I was getting from women was that same type of energy as when women are interested in me sexually, and that's just how I read that energy. And C, where I'm from, it's an appealing male quality for men to charm women. This is a country type of attitude. Growing up, I watched men that I admire charm women, and there wasn't anything devious about it at all. The men had no intention of following through, and the women knew this as well. So even married men would be charming to women, and this appeared strongly like flirting, but it's really in a different category. It's charm, and the young, maybe married women, giggle and they get red-cheeked, and there's nothing intentionally questionable about it. The best example I can think of uh, this is Kirk Douglas. I saw him in a John Wayne movie the other night called The War Wagon. And he was a charming sort of woman pleaser, but in an endearing way. In the early days of Last Symptom, several of these women I flirted with early on later became disillusioned and bitter with me, usually because of the natural evolution of the Last Symptom changes that you know naturally had to happen or in the way that I wouldn't allow them to break certain rules of the group or in how I would firmly challenge them on their incorrect notions or from jealousy they'd find out that I'd flirted with somebody else and they took offense to this and so they left the group and they're still out there today trying to paint this totally false picture of me as a guy who harasses women they know it's not true, but they're bitter and unhealthy, 
and live with these totally skewed perceptions and everything's always everybody else's fault and they just want to tear down. Just a week ago, I booted a guy named Jamie because he was combative. He was trying to sow confusion. And uh, the first thing he does in his spite is go into iTunes and leave a review about how he doesn't think I'm a very good person. Well, Jamie, I know what you're referring to. You're referring to other past disgruntled members who feel slighted just as you do. And so you're going to jump on the Brian Barnett harasses women bandwagon. Well, that's your prerogative, Jamie. Hopefully, though, I've helped dispel that slander. Number one, their entire argument is built on the misconception or the the purposeful misconception that flirting is bad. Flirting is not bad. Number two, I've never in my life continued flirting with any woman when it became clear that it wasn't welcome. But there's no way to know that until you try. (laughs) Some of the woke crowd seem to think that showing sexual interest in any other person is inherently bad. So if another person doesn't want your attention, but you give it to them, but you don't know that they don't want your attention, then you're a bad person. How are you supposed to know they didn't want that attention? Just because? Showing sexual interest in other people is not inherently bad. That's a ridiculous framing of the reality. It can become bad if a person continues pestering another person after it's clear that the other person's not interested. But I've never done that. Number three, any disgruntled critic out there who tries to paint me as some sort of harasser knows full well that she either consensually reciprocated, she started it in the first place, or she never communicated that she didn't like it, thereby giving me an opportunity to apologize and not do it. Number four, grow up. If an adult person doesn't like something, he or she needs to take responsibility for himself or herself, pull up their diaper, and say so. So if you're offended that somebody's flirting with you, but you also never make that clear to him or her by your body language or by simply telling the other person that you don't like it, that's your failure, isn't it? I mean, if a guy's flirting with you and you're giggling like a schoolgirl, but at the same time, you don't want that guy flirting with you, but you never say so, whose failure is this? It's your failure. Because your body language is saying the opposite of what you're thinking, but you are not sharing what you're thinking. Maybe in your universe, people are supposed to read your mind, and there's supposed to be some police force that can swoop in and protect you from all the terrible things in in the world, like flirting and glances from the opposite sex and compliments, heaven forbid, so that you don't have to manage any of your own responsibilities like an adult. For the record, as the last symptom has evolved and become a more well-known brand, and as I've gained clarity on what my objectives here are and the best way to achieve them, and through trial and error, I very, very rarely (laughs) initiate any obvious flirting anymore with women that I interact with on the topic of emotional health. 
just like the author I mentioned earlier. It didn't take me very long to realize that often the energy I was getting from women was not related to sexual interest. It just very strongly resembled that. I learned this the hard way and innocently. So I guess what that means is that if you come on to me in the past two years, it probably went right over my head because since I can't distinguish the two things, I don't know if you just appreciate my work or if you daydream about sleeping with me. I just don't don't know. I can't distinguish one from the other. So I have defaulted to assuming that women simply admire my work. Much safer. It's hard to have this discussion and to address some of these accusations of my disgruntled, embittered critics from the past head-on, especially since they, they get to do all this uh, slander uh, incognito. Think about it. They do it all incognito. Uh, I protect their privacy. I don't tell you who these people are, but they, they can say anything they want incognito, in secret, hiding behind false names and stuff. And, um, you know, I'm not hiding behind any kind of secret name or anything like that. Uh, If you'll notice, I'm also not vindictively revealing who these people are. I continue to protect their privacy and to show them respect, even while not getting it from them. Furthermore, I continue to hope very good things for them. You know, there was, no, there was no greater lost cause than I was. So the fact that I'm here is kind of a miracle. Uh, and so I never lose out hope on anybody. And I recognize that uh, attitudes and feelings and sincerity can change over time. But uh, that slander coming from that group of disgruntled ex-members, uh, it's very one-sided It's disingenuously motivated and hypocritical. So I made it very clear in this episode that I love good sex. And and if you hear that and feel like it's a problem, there's something wrong with you, not me, frankly. Listen, if you don't like sex, that's what is abnormal. If you think people should be able to read your mind and never take a chance flirting with you, that is what is abnormal, not the fact that somebody flirted with you. But enough about that. Let's get back to the good stuff. When I mentioned that today's topic would be sex and that it would be explicit and no holds barred, I got a lot of interesting questions that folks hoped I would address in one form or another. I'm going to try to tackle most of these if I can, uh, but there might just be things that get left out that we'll have to address some other time. I realize that some people, women particularly, who have been sexually abused in their past, have a difficult time enjoying sex. I just want to assure you that there's nothing wrong with you. And what I mean by this is that there's not some fundamentally broken thing about you that makes sex a difficult thing for you to enjoy. Good sex is about 80% psychological and about 20% physical. I'm going to say that again. Good sex is about 80% psychological and only about 20% physical. Show me somebody who disagrees with this statement, and I'll show you somebody who's a terrible lover 
So obviously, those of you who have some sort of sexual abuse in your past, this is interfering with the 80% part of what makes sex good. I mean, clearly, you can physically go through all the same motions as anybody else, right? But the emotional aspect, which is just another way of saying the psychological aspect of it, has some things that need to be worked out. I want to encourage you to not allow this issue to reinforce the concept in your mind that there's something wrong with you. Because, see, the sexual abuse already communicated to you that something's wrong with you. Specifically, it communicated to you that your feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. After all, how on earth would the person who sexually abused you be able to do such a thing to such an innocent person if her feelings mattered? Because her feelings were saying, no, please don't do this. And this did not influence the abuser in any way to refrain from doing what he or she did. So you're trying to work through these messages that were inherently connected to the experience and to see why those messages were never true. You're trying to work out why, in fact, the opposite is true, that you and your feelings do inherently matter and that this abuse was in no way an indicator of anything otherwise. Do you know what the only thing the sexual abuse was an indicator of? That the person who abused you was sick. That's it. Nothing or nobody external from us, that is, nothing that is not we ourselves, can be an indicator of any inherent truths about we ourselves. Do you see that? Only we ourselves can indicate inherent things about ourselves. So a guy at a bar yells at me in the face and tells me I'm, and tells me I'm ugly and stupid. What's this an indicator of? Is it an indicator about any reality about me myself? No. It's only an indicator that the guy who yelled at me is being an asshole. He might not even always be an asshole. All we know is that at that moment, he's being an asshole. That's all. Nothing more. Nothing outside of me can reflect truths about me. Only I can reflect truths about me. So, the experience you live with of having been sexually abused is a reflection on the person who sexually abused you. But it is impossible that it somehow is a reflection on you. There's nothing wrong with you. There, there are things you're dealing with, but there are things you are dealing with. They are not things you are. Important distinction there. As you begin to understand and see these realities more and more clearly, the psychological or emotional issues that are creating a barrier to your ability to enjoy sex in a healthy way will also improve. Just be sure to make that perspective correction every time you begin to think that the consequences of some abuse or some problem you're dealing with is a reflection on who you are. It's not. It's a reflection on the person who abused you. It's a reflection on what you're dealing with. 
but it's not a reflection on you. Now, back to this 80-20% thing. 80%, 20%. Where do I get this? Well, working in the hospital has some benefits. I was working for a guy named Edwin. Edwin was a young man, 35. He had fallen off of a roof where he was doing roofing work, and he broke his neck, and he broke his neck higher his injury was higher than Christopher Reeves. If you remember Christopher Reeves, the Superman guy, uh, rolled around in that uh, wheelchair for a long time, could not even move his head, really. Well, Edwin's injury was even higher than that. So he couldn't feel anything from, like, the chin down. And I worked with his family. He, his wife, he had three young children at the time. It was a heartbreaking situation. One day... After about, uh, I reckon, three, three to six months, it's, it's hard to recall, uh, they called me over the intercom. Brian Barnett, you got to get down here to this room. So I went racing down there. It was a stack call. I got down there, and the whole family was in hysterics. There was a doctor standing outside the hospital room there, and she wanted to go in and talk to him and find out what was going on. So we went in. And it, the reality of all this for Edwin had just dropped on top of him like a, like a ton of bricks. Uh, he had been in denial all that time up until this day. And he suddenly began to realize that he'd never be able to feel his children hug him again. He would never be able to uh, feel his wife's hand in his hand. It was very emotional. I, it went on and on, and I was, you know, as the interpreter, I'm interpreting both sides of the conversation. And finally, I had to tell the daughter, "I need a break. I need a break, because, uh, whew, this is uh, rough." So she gave me a break, but we continued the conversation. That conversation went on for a long time that day. I remember one of Edwin's concerns being that he'd never be able to be sexually. Uh, active with his wife ever again. And I learned some very amazing, uh, some incredible insights that day uh, just from working through the doctor. Did you know that ejaculation and orgasm are two entirely unrelated things? You heard me correctly. They're two unrelated things. Edwin, even though he could not feel his body from the chin down, could still ejaculate. How would this happen? This would happen by physical stimulation. So his wife could masturbate Edwin and while he's asleep. He wouldn't even know it. And if she did this long enough, he would ejaculate. He wouldn't even feel it. He couldn't feel any of it, but his penis would um, grow to erection, just like any man's penis that can feel it. And uh, if it was stroked long enough, if his wife stroked him long enough, he would ejaculate. He wouldn't feel a thing, but it would happen. It's a physical response. Now, could Edwin have an orgasm? The answer is yes. 
but not just from physical stimulation. How could Edwin, who can't feel anything from the neck down, experience an orgasm? Now, think about what an orgasm is. When you've experienced an orgasm, it's not like, oh, my toe feels good, right? It's not in a centralized location. An orgasm happens all through your body. Maybe you've never thought of that before, but the next time you're having sex and you have an orgasm or you're masturbating and you have an orgasm, notice that. The pleasure does not just originate in your crotch. (laughs) It happens all through your body. How can that be? And how can it be that Edwin, who can't feel anything physical, could experience the an orgasm throughout his entire body. How is that possible? It's because orgasms are psychological. They happen in your brain, not in your crotch. I'm going to let you think about that for a second. Now, what what does all this imply? For Edwin to experience an orgasm, it wasn't enough that... uh, his wife was physically stimulating him because remember he can't feel any of that but as it was explained to him and as I interpret it for him he could experience orgasm if his wife were to put him in the position and to make love to him in a way that he could see her so it's the sensuality that Edwin is now experiencing of seeing his wife riding him and the way her body moves and the way her body looks and the way she smells, the way she touches his face, the sensuality of it all, him seeing this could bring him to orgasm. Even though he can't feel her on top of him, he can't feel her, he can't feel himself going in and out of her He can't feel anything below his chin. He can see it. And he gets so turned on that an orgasm happens. Back to uh, ejaculation orgasm. We think they're the same thing. The the general population out there thinks they're the same thing. Uh, You probably have always thought they're the same thing. They're not. They, They can happen totally separate from each other. And you don't have to ejaculate in order to have an orgasm, although often it's a natural result of it. And many people have never experienced an orgasm (laughs) because when you ejaculate, there's pleasure in that. There's a release in that. But it's not the same as, as an orgasm. The ejaculation, the pleasure happens in a centralized location, which is, you know, your cock or your pussy or whatever you know since we're talking sexy here that's that's why i'm talking that's why i'm using the right term the correct terminology but there's a load of truth for you you probably probably change your whole understanding of what's been happening when you've been having sex orgasms are psychological they happen in the brain this is why you feel it through your entire body it's not a centralized location. It's why even paraplegics can experience orgasms, even though you could you know, hammer a nail through their kneecap. They're not going to feel that at all. But they will feel an orgasm through their entire body, the same as you and I do. Fascinating, isn't it? So, 
good sex, 80% psychological, 20% physical. I made those numbers up, by the way. It could be 90% psychological and 10% physical. Don't quote me on the numbers. A question that often comes up is people worrying about not enjoying sex as much once they've escaped emotional unhealth. So they have a high sex drive now, or they feel like they're really great at sex, and they, and they really enjoy it. But they worry that once people become emotionally healthy, they turn into born duds who don't enjoy things the same way they once did. Well, for that reason, I started off today's show in uh, the explicit way that I did. I wasn't simply trying to turn your cheeks red or draft a new romance novel. Everything I said about how much I enjoy sex is true. I love sex. I've always loved sex, and I've always been very sensual and sexual. This was true before my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder, and it's still true now. Now, this does not mean that nothing has changed as far as sex goes from when I was living with emotional disorder to now that I don't have an emotional disorder. There have indeed been some changes. Do you remember that at the beginning of today's discussion, I explained how it's very rarely things that can be classified as healthy or unhealthy? What did I say we could classify as healthy or unhealthy? the motivating force behind any particular thing, right? In this case, sex is the thing. And the motivating force creating a desire for it is what we look at to be able to classify this behavior as healthy or unhealthy. In general, sex is a healthy adult need. But what are some unhealthy forces that compel unhealthy people to chase sex? Well, the big one is intimacy deficiency. A person who lives with the subconscious or unconscious certainty that they're inherently without worth cannot ever experience true intimacy. Why not? Because the very nature of intimacy is the lack of fear of revealing your true inner self to another human being. If the certainty you live with is that you, as a person, are inherently devoid of worth, that is, incapable of being valued, what is also the certainty you live with of what will absolutely occur if you ever reveal yourself in an authentic way to other human beings? What, what's the only thing it can be? Rejection. There's no other possibility. To not be completely convinced that you will be rejected is also to not believe that you're inherently devoid of worth. Do you see the catch-22? Intimacy is a human need, not a luxury, a need. And just like any other need, such as our need for water or vitamin C or salt, when we're deprived of it, not only do we suffer, but we also subconsciously search for ways to relieve that deficiency and intense need. In the case of somebody who lives with the distorted core beliefs of emotional disorder, which is that their very nature is one of no inherent worth, they can't bring themselves to relieve this intimacy deficiency even if they're aware of it. Because from their subconscious reality, making any move to provide themselves with intimacy can only, only result in them not getting it. 
Do you see? You could spend a week just thinking about this one thing, and it'll make your head swim. It's truly fascinating, but uh, tragic. And above all, it is more powerfully enslaving than I think most people understand. So what does a person stuck in this situation do? They look for inferior substitutes, things that involve similarities to genuine intimacy that's kind of related to it, but that is not genuine intimacy. The great deficiency creates an intense need or hunger. The inferior substitutes dampen the deficiency and bring a measure of instant temporary relief. But because these inferior substitutes are merely substitutes, they can never fulfill the need for real. What's the result? A constant chasing after the inferior substitutes. After all, they do bring some instant temporary relief. This reminds me of a backpacking trip I went on a few years ago. It was winter. I was with my brother and my buddy Jeff, and uh, we got out into the wilderness on the top of this high mountain range. And because it was so cold, everything was frozen rock solid. The water we were carrying froze rock solid. And because we were on top of this mountain, we were having trouble finding water. Now, they say you can go without water for about three days before you die. But what they don't tell you is that after just one day, you will be in critical shape. On this trip, I went a full 24 hours without any water at all. And I can't adequately describe to you the thirst I experienced. It was like nothing you can imagine. I tried to keep my mind off of it, but it was impossible. It was overwhelming and constant. Nothing else mattered. And what I remember is that that night, sitting around the campfire, we were so thirsty, we began to search through our packs and eat anything we had. (laughs) We're thirsty, so we're eating. I personally had three bagels that were frozen solid, and and out of desperation to do anything to relieve this intense thirst, I thawed those bagels out over our campfire, and I ate them. And do you know what? Eating the bagels did instantly relieve the thirst a little bit. It was such minute and irrelevant relief, but it was relief nonetheless and very fleeting. Literally, the instant I had swallowed the last bite, the thirst was already overwhelming me again. So that's a little like what people who are intensely intimacy deficient are like when they use sex as their inferior substitute. It's similar in some ways to authentic intimacy. You know, sex is similar, and it does provide some relief, but because it's an inferior substitute, it never satisfies for real or for completely. The search goes on. Eat another bagel, now another one, because jumping Jehoshaphat, I'm thirsty. So everything I just uh, explained was the truth in my case prior to recovery. The motivating force compelling me to have sex was in large part due to overwhelmingly powerful intimacy deficiency. Is that still the case today? Not at all. There's no compulsion today. That's the difference. There's no underlying 
unhealthy compulsion pushing me around, making me look for sex. And I don't use sex as an inferior substitute to anything. I'm, I'm not trying to relieve some deficiency. Do I like sex as much as I ever did? Well, hopefully it's uh, clear to you by now that I do. Am I consumed by thoughts of it? No, I'm not. Am I as sensual as I've ever been? Yes. Some other unhealthy forces that compel unhealthy people to seek sex is external validation and affirmation. You know, nothing external quite makes you feel so good about yourself as a woman wanting you inside of her or voluntarily offering herself to you to do as you wish. Or, if you're a woman, as a man wanting to ravish you. Again, the distorted core beliefs of emotional disorder create this need for external validation and affirmation. Because a person lives with the certainty that they don't have inherent value, any sense of value they get to enjoy has to come from external sources. They truly can't generate their own sense of worth from within. It's entirely dependent on external things, such as their career, or the car they drive, or the house they live in, or the compliment they get from somebody, or what other people think of their looks, or the number of women they can sleep with. This also changed with me from prior to recovery to now. I desperately craved the external validation of women. Now, do I enjoy attention from women? Yes, I do very much. Is it because I can't generate my own inner sense of validation? No. Do I feel less good about myself if I'm not having sex with women? No. I feel good about myself no matter what's going on in my life. I don't only like myself when external things say I can. So, believe me and take comfort in this. You will not lose your sensuality or sex drive by leaving emotional unhealth behind and becoming emotionally healthy. You will retain those things if you want to. Sensuality, a strong appreciation for sex, kinkiness, the thrill, the enjoyment. None of these things are unhealthy. Remember? <laughs> There's plenty of people out there that want you to believe they're unhealthy or naughty or bad. They're not. What are the only things you leave behind when you become emotionally healthy? The only things you leave behind is the stuff that was unhealthy. Sex isn't unhealthy. Being sexual isn't unhealthy. Loving sex isn't unhealthy. I know many of you might think I'm pretty straight-laced, but believe me, I'm a sensual guy. I love a certain measure of kinkiness and daring in my sex life. I really get lost in lovemaking and great sex, and I get a hunger for it that is powerful and delicious. I was like this long before my recovery, and I'm still like that now. The motivating forces behind my enjoyment of sex is all that has changed. I'm, I get totally consumed in the experience and the enjoyment of being with a woman.
There are few things in life that I enjoy more than good sex with a woman that I'm sexually attracted to. It really is one of just the just the greatest pleasures of life. Also, back to contrast. Let's see if any of you can identify with this. I have always loved sex that challenges conventions. For example, when I was younger, I loved being with women who were much older than me. The, the naughtiness of it was such a major turn-on. You know, the arrangements that society and people in general sort of frown upon and will generate a lot of gossip and controversy. Yes, that type of sex turns me on like crazy. So, again, when I was younger, it was sex with older women, or even better, older married women. Yes, I agree that it was technically wrong, but this ain't a discussion about morality, remember? I'm just being real here. And I gotta admit that some of the best sex in my young life was with older married women. Uh, I broke down on the side of a road, a, a back road once, and this fine older woman pulled up and offered me a ride. And uh, I knew exactly what she had in mind, and I was so ready for it, too. I was just about to accept her offer and get in her car when none other than my dang mother <laughs> came around the corner, come driving around the corner in her car. And uh, do you know that if I had a time machine, by golly, I would go back and tell myself to not even think about it. Just accept that woman's offer and get in her car and tell her to punch it before my mom has a chance to come around the curve and ruin everything. I'm 45 now, so the nature or dynamics of what can now be classified as frowned upon sex has changed a bit for me, but it's still really a turn on for me. I had sex with a 19-year-old college woman, and it was, you know, one of the hottest things ever. It was amazing. She's never going to be able to have sex with guys her own age anymore and be satisfied. When I worked in the hospital, I had sexual experiences with doctors right on the desks in their offices, with nurses, with radiologists. I, I love sex with wild rocker-type women, tattoos and piercings. Why? Because of the contrast between a woman like that and me. You know, I'm just an old country boy with a single modest tattoo that hardly anybody ever gets to see. I have a sensible haircut, and I dress like a dad. And I like to screw women who are opposite of me, a little wild and rebellious. It makes for some hot sex. A psychologist once gave me a blowjob in a Barnes & Noble bookstore in Philadelphia, believe it or not. She wouldn't take no for an answer, so I said yes. I was perfectly willing to take that risk. <laughs> I'm not saying I only get turned on by, you know, daring slash frowned upon sex. I'm, I'm just pointing it out as one reality that I live with, that I personally think it's hot, and it turns me on. I, I get just as turned on by women without tattoos who are in my same age group. So you know, none of these statements are like this, I like this more or less. I, I like it all.
One last subject I'd like to discuss today related to sex is my earliest sexual experiences. I wanted to talk about it because it was a huge source of shame for me for many, many, many years. There were experiences that I had as a child that became so humiliating and embarrassing and shameful to me that I thought I would carry them as secrets into my grave. And, and now look, here I am talking about them on the World Wide Web for anybody to discover, and I don't care. It was common for me and my friends, starting at about the age of four or five, to sexually explore and experiment on each other and with each other. So I'm talking about friends in you know my same age group when I was very young, and uh, even cousins were included in there. And I often practiced or played kissing with other girls, and uh, with both girls and boys, there was often touching and fondling. Because I had notions, even at that young age, that this was terribly wrong behavior, you know, which came mostly from my parents who were, you know, uh, not very uh, understanding about uh, human nature. Because of this, I carried what I thought was tremendous guilt for many, many years. You know, we had done these things in secret, always hiding while doing it, knowing that the adults would, would beat us for it and that we would suffer extreme punishment if caught. Especially repugnant to me also was the fact that I had done many of these things with other boys, too. All of this just more powerfully reinforced in my already distorted thinking that I was terrible and dirty and bad and broken and uh, unlovable. As I say, I carried what I'm telling you now around in secret for most of my life up until only just about 10 years or so ago. I'm not kidding when I say I would have rather fallen off a cliff and died before I would have ever shared any of these details with anybody, the details I just shared with you. Death, and I'm speaking literally here. This is not even figurative speech. Death was a more appealing idea to me than the idea of anybody discovering these dirty secrets about, about me. Well, what happened? To answer that, let me read to you this quote from uh, the novel Dr. Sleep by Stephen King. Uh, in it, a character who's trying to help Danny, the main protagonist, says to him, Dano, is there anything you want to tell me? I think there is. I don't know how long you've been dragging the motherfucker around, but you can leave it with me and walk out of here a hundred pounds lighter. That's how this works. Well, there's so much truth to that passage that you will never understand until you've experienced it for yourself. I was in the intensive program in Arizona that I've talked about in the past, and at a very stressful, critical moment one day, as I was sitting with one of the psychologists there, I spilled the beans on this great secret that I had been keeping for all of my life. What made me share this thing that I'd have rather died over before letting anybody know? Well, I was exhausted, and I also felt hopeless. It seemed like there was absolutely nothing left to lose at that moment. So, 
I told this guy. I told this guy what the details of what a horrible person I am and how dirty and disgusting I am. And I shared the, everything. And at the end, I looked at him to find the repulsion and disappointment in his face. And do you know what I saw there? I saw compassion. He wasn't even surprised. And when I say he wasn't surprised, I mean he wasn't even the slightest bit surprised or shocked about anything I had told him. And the first thing he said when I finished was, So? All kids do that. Never in my life have I felt such an enormous weight just totally drop from off of my back as I felt after telling him the thing that I thought would be the end of me and him replying, so all kids do that. He went on to explain to me that all kids explore and experiment like what I had described. Even he himself had done it. He explained to me how it's a natural part of how children who know nothing about the world get to know about the world for themselves and that it's a normal part of learning. And all of this time, all of this time, I had unnecessarily thought it was only me, only me out of 8 billion children having had done these awful things and then with the terrible burden of such shame. You see, right after I had this discussion with him, I went on to learn the difference between guilt and shame, and I had the epiphany that uh, all that guilt I believed I had always lived with was actually shame, and I began to see how it had been weighing me down, keeping me a prisoner, and uh, robbing me of any possibility to ever uh, experience contentment. If you're somebody with a secret like the one I used to pack around like a four-ton weight on my back, and you want relief, find somebody you trust who is not a family member and tell them everything. You don't want it to be a family member because it's not wise to go to the very people who are responsible for enslaving you to this shame in the first place. They're responsible for you believing you can't trust anybody and that you're shit in the first first place so don't go to them go to somebody who exists outside of that emotionally unhealthy bubble and get your secrets off your shoulders you don't have to carry it alone you're doing that unnecessarily the relief is right there you just have to get it off of yourself it can literally change your life from one second to the next is there anything you want to tell somebody? I think there is. I don't know how long you've been dragging that motherfucker around, but you can leave it with somebody you trust and walk out of there a hundred pounds lighter. That's how it works. What are some other things I learned about these incredibly shameful experiences that were ruining my life for over 30 years? In addition to the fact that it's a perfectly normal aspect of how most kids experience life and, the, and get to know about the world? Well, I learned that I was still judging myself at 37 for the things I did at 7, illogically thinking that me 
and my past self were the same person, and that my past self should have known at seven all that I knew at at 37. When you see the ridiculousness of that, any sense of shame begins to lose its grip. Also, you know, I... I realize that dependent children are not responsible for anything they do or don't do. That's why they're dependents. They're entirely dependent on adults. Because they're entirely dependent on adults, it's the adults who are responsible for anything that the children do or don't do or that happens to them, not you as a child. You know, I can talk about this for a long time because I know many of you out there are experiencing something similar to what I was experiencing. And it's weighing you down and sucking the life out of you. It's keeping you depressed and miserable and angry with yourself. The takeaway from this part of our discussion is really that the sooner you can share the secret with somebody who will understand and help you put it into a healthier context that you possibly are not able to achieve on your own, the sooner you can be completely freed from this great debilitating weight that you very probably never had to start carrying to begin with. Once you consider all the multitude of factors involved, readjust uh, your perspectives about the realities involved and uh, realign your perspective on the matter more healthfully. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm tired. That was a long show. I think I'm going to go in and uh, take a hot or a cold shower and uh, think about uh, Miss May Pinup uh, on the calendar. (laughs) 